Next Chapter Podcasts. What does Colgate mean by live life to the brightest? Could it be a rich glass of red sipped inside a Parisian cafe on a snowy night when my gaze is met by a tall, mysterious... <coughs> I mean, brushing is directed with Colgate Optic White Pro Series Toothpaste gives you a visibly whiter smile in just three days, so you can live life to the brightest and finish that glass without worrying about teeth stains. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Next Chapter Podcasts. Hi, and welcome back to How I Got Greenlit, where we continue our conversation with legendary producer Craig Perry, maker of Final Destination, American Pie, and many others, as he discusses his roles in in in-studio politics, outside studio politics, and the crazy making of the film American Pie. There's two schools of thought, and I kind of, I, I hate to be sort of like, you know, I fall in the middle. It's nice to look out and say, well, what is missing in the sort of entertainment landscape? Because then there's a gap that you can fill. There's something that you will be will be unique by contrast. Like if there's tons of action movies, we'll go make a romance. Everything can be made new again if it's done right. So we were looking at the landscape and there hadn't been a sex comedy of any quality in years. Oh, mostly no. I, it's, because it's, the directive video marketplace had just I mean, all those videotapes in the 80s had just filled it with just garbage regional movies that were just as prurient, and they had they lacked consequence. Interestingly, we were shooting American Pie when Something About Mary came out, and our mm. first AD was the first AD on Something About Mary. Nice. So we knew that there was an appetite there, obviously with older, it was, it was with older characters – that like with older characters that appeal to a slave. But once you hit that teenage marketplace, man, oh my God, I'll bet you had people not bought tickets for different movies and snuck into our movie, we would have had a much bigger, even bigger opening weekend because you know, R rated can't get in there. Can't go see it. Was that now that brings up an interesting thing. And again, we're kind of getting off topic, but I have to ask, was there a fight with the studio? You said they laid off, but was there a fight with anybody to get Never. to PG? It was there, it, you guys were Never. hard R the entire time. Raunchy. They knew that that's the movie they needed to make. They looked at the marketplace and said, this is going to be distinct. Really and remember, they had that backstop with DVD. Didn't matter. Right. Like they, yeah, it, right. it was okay. Now, there was, interestingly, we got it rated NC-17, I think, four <laughs> times for submission. <laughs> and, and the things that we had to cut, we had to cut a couple pie thrusts like there's one bit where after Stifler guzzles the jism beer, he's puking in the toilet and someone comes in and says, initially the line was, how's the man chowder? And and, this, and for some reason, the MPA thought that was horrifying. So we changed it to how's the pale ale, which is it makes no sense, but it's funny just as a wordplay. It was odd the things that they had problems with. And yet we could not, we couldn't get it passed. And it was to the point where the studio was getting 
frustrated because like what 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 more can you do and it, you realize that this nameless faceless body of adjudicators are just going to say whatever their bible tells them to say and you can't really circumnavigate it but when you get them to go off the record they tell you quietly we'll lose two things here and you'll be fine uh, but yeah. they won't say it out loud. They won't codify it. Spoken. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But in a second, I want to ask you, because you're not only are you the comedy maven, you're the horror maven. So you well, that's my bread and butter. I, I, I grew up watching horror movies. I love horror movies. I always have. Look, the Final Destination franchise is born out of a failed X-Files spec episode that Jeffrey Reddick turned into a three-page outline for a feature, which at the time... My old partner had faxed to me. I was up in San Francisco for the weekend to my hotel. And I read it. It's like, there's a total movie here. We came back. We developed a, I think like 16 or 17 page treatment, which then New Line bought for a hundred grand. Remember, <laughs> oh, those heady days where they would spend a lot of money on everything. Scale plus 10. Yep. And we just knew that there was an idea here that everybody could sort of get around, which is that fear of, did I just miss dying? Why did I survive? Why is, Was it not my time or maybe it'll be my time sometime later? Once Morgan and Wong came on and they took the idea of death and completely made it an invisible force, that there's a ledger that death as an entity is keeping as to how and when you should die, that opened it up so that you can really start questioning on a personal level, why did I live? Why did I die? Is today the day? Like when you go, you know, when you sort of have a near miss on the highway and you're wondering, oh my God, did I just by not doing this cause an event later on? Did I just do it here? People say that all the time. Like we yeah, should have died. Like I, I, there are many instances in my life where I talk to my friends about things that had happened in the past or in college or something. I say, we should have died that right. night. And I think what if everyone that was says the that. Plan? What yeah. if you were meant to survive then so that at that moment, a week from now, that's where that's where the penny drops. That's what's so compelling about it. And I think because death and the idea of dying is a weirdly pan-cultural notion, these movies have a lot of worldwide traction because we're not rooting it in a specifically American mythology. It's just a human perspective, living and dying. And what does that mean? So we knew right off the bat, there was an idea. There's an entry point for everybody. Now, in terms of tone and execution, the best iterations of it have been straight with a little bit of dark irony underneath it. The worst iterations have gone for the splat stick physical comedy version, which is just, I mean, the, the struggles to get any of these things right are their own sort of two-hour podcast for every movie. But suffice it to say, I would say that the first movie, because it was first and did it first, is a great sort of a distillation of everything that works about the Final Destination franchise. The second one is a bit more comedic in tone, but is just so well executed. And that opening crash scene is just ridiculous. The third one is beautifully made, but kind of a carbon copy of the first one in terms of its beats, but it's just so well done. Mary Elizabeth Winstead is fantastic in it. The fourth one, I could eat a can of film and shit a better movie. It is <laughs> terrible. It's awful. And the process of getting that made was one of the hardest things I've ever done. No, wait a second. Why was it different than any of the other ones? I mean, they had to be on board with making them because at they this were. point- Every three yeah. years we were on the cycle, but it was a strike script. Oh. It was, uh, and I, do, I, get, I, I don't want to get too deep into it, but let's just say that ultimately we had to get a, a diff, we had to get rid of the editor, we had to get rid of the director, we had to do 35 pages of reshoots. Wow. It was an enormous undertaking to fix that movie, not so that it would be good, so that it would be releasable. 
Uh, and the bitter irony is it made $206 million worldwide. And that is purely because it was cresting the wave of 3D. And this was obviously a perfectly suited franchise for 3D. Yeah, and, and technically, I think they're probably difficult movies to make. They are. I mean, that's the, the one just, thing. Just with the visual effects combination, also the practical effects. I, I mean, if you've never... I actually just watched the first one recently again, and uh, they have to be difficult movies. Ryan, crash given, and, and- given your background in physical production... The thing about these movies, and it's they, they are they are deceptively because most of the people who are new to the franchise, if we're making another one, are like, "Oh, it's just a little horror movie." I'm, and I say to them, "Look, yeah, this will be the hardest thing you do in your entire absolutely. life. Every department has to be operating at peak capacities every day because it's never just usually actors talking. It's every discipline lined up delivering the goods on a timely manner, um, and not not only on a timely manner, but." Things are time like if you watch those movies, uh, the events are are almost set to a time, and the beats are set to a time. And to achieve those things and have them flow and make any sense by the time you reach the editing room, I can't imagine the difficulty and all of those things working together. I obviously scenes from different scenes that are taking place in different places, and you film it at different times. That's one thing, but just the beats that happen along with all the visual effects and pre-production and planning and everything that has to come to it. I know when I watch them, I can appreciate and say, this isn't just, this isn't just Jason coming around the corner and planning a machete and a fake head. It's you, it's a timing thing. It's a tough thing to do. So you'll, you'll you'll appreciate this. So we, I think had 63 days to shoot final destination five. And that was the one with the bridge opening the bridge collapse. That bridge collapse is about four minutes of footage of edited footage. We spent 19 days out of 63 just shooting those four minutes. That's unbelievable. That's how technically challenging it was just to do it. I mean, massive 10,000 pound pig iron gimbals on which we built these massive sections of the bridge so they could pivot and pitch and yaw against a 270 degree screen screen. We had cars that we'd emptied out of the heaviest items on those things that could fall off. It was in, It's insane how technically challenging those movies are. And again, it's so interesting. American Pie is the complete opposite. You have a bunch of characters that you want to find in a situation that puts them through their paces. Whereas Final Destination is a situation that you just want to find characters to put into. They are almost the polar opposite of how the mechanism of how each one of them worked. And they shouldn't work, but they do. And I, 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 I wish I could explain exactly, like put my finger in, this is why this works. I just know what they do and how they operate, but man, they shouldn't work because they don't have that, you know, you don't have the characters leading the story. You have the characters just existing and you put them into situations for, for uh, American Pie. Like let's, let's take the gang that we know and have them coming back from college. Let's get them married. It's like a, it's like a sitcom. I just find find it really interesting that, you know, people get pigeonholed in this business a lot. And it, and I don't think that there could be two franchises that could be so diametrically different than Final Destination and American Pie. And yet you pull them both off. It is a miracle that uh, only two movies I've ever worked on have ever been, quote unquote, certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. One, by dint of, I think, like one vote is Final Destination 5. And we made this movie in Australia called Oddball which is the true story about a penguin preserve just off the coast of Australia that was being decimated by foxes. And while the township was willing to let the whole thing go south because they couldn't figure out how to save the penguins, a local farmer trained his dog 
to guard the penguins from foxes and thereby completely change the way that um, preserves or uh, conservation preserves run and save the penguins. True story. So we said, great. It's a total family movie. That movie is great. Plays to the roof. It's a total family movie on every level. If you were to rate it, it was like a PG. It's really good. And we, I can't believe we pulled it off with animals and CG and building an island also. But that's, again, I think that if you just do the same thing back and forth, you're just going to get emotionally stale and intellectually. Uh, yeah, fra- you, you got to keep, uh, keep it fresh. So if we can, so if we can do I'm working on all count. different kinds of movies, right? I'm looking at my active project list and they couldn't be different from project to project to project, just so that I don't atrophy. <laughs> so basically you participated in the virtual murder of a thousand teenagers, but you saved an I saved a colony of penguins. penguins. I, I did. love it. It's true. One final question. How much, not final, well, but one question about Pi. What was the budget of the first one? We brought it in for 10.7. And we wound up putting another half million dollars in for music. The music budget, as you can imagine at the time, if you remember, Universal Music said, because we actually, when we temp scored it, we tempted with all the current and upcoming hits because why the fuck not? And the studio's like, yeah, those are good. And that you know, they had to open the vault to ensure that those songs that really felt current and in the right right tonal space would be in the movie. But it didn't matter because, you know, we were okay. And the <laughs> final destination was a step up in terms of the bigger crew, bigger effects, bigger $17 everything. million dollar movie. That's it. Okay. That's pretty cheap for what you did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm, I'm trying to calculate just that's pretty impressive. That's really impressive. So I guess to recap that you would say that your life, you felt like your your career, not necessarily life, your career really changed upon the release and, you know, the momentum that came behind American Pie, which yeah. I would say is a seminal. Yeah. No moment. pun intended. A seminal, a seminal moment, but that's right. <laughs> anyway, so one of the things we like to do is celebrate lesser known films, what we call director's B-sides, B-sides. which is... You know, most film uh, lovers and even just the general audience will have a, a good idea like, oh, Steven Spielberg, he made E.T. Well, we did Close Encounters, which is a much lesser known, some people know it, respected film that we feel might have set him along that, you know, blockbuster way that he developed in the 80s. So similarly, another favorite director of ours, and especially Craig, is David Cronenberg. And I think modern audiences would say history of violence. (laughs) No, 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 they wouldn't. History of violence is, I think it's a pretty, you know, well-respected film. 15 years ago. Well, I know, but then. 15 years ago. Well, I also get it, but I'm saying it's still out there. It's still playing. And it's, uh, by the way, I just saw it recently. It holds up and and everybody loves Vigo. Vigo is. That's true. And I also want to say that if you're fans of the Rick and Morty show, which a lot of people are these days, Cronenberg has. Uh, Cronenbergs have come up in it's the lexicon a, it's a now. It's a le- yeah, and it's a, it's in the it's in the lexicon now, and it's important to know that the, that came from somewhere. Yes. and it's a style, one of many pop culture references. But I would say, if you know, nine out of ten people would say, "Oh yeah, the guy that did the fly." Right. Correct. That was, that, that was the big, he planted a flag. That was his green lip moment. moment. Yes. 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 That was the one, the crossover. He was a B, but, he was but, a B movie guy. By the way, a movie, gr- a movie greenlit by Scott Rudin. Nice. The oh, there's a connection. See, See always connection. Oh no. Movie. There's a whole other connection. I had read a book 
that I thought would be a perfect Cronenberg movie while I was working for Scott. And I happened to be in New York and I went to Scott's office and said, Hey, I read this book. I think it'd be perfect for Cronenberg. And I know like you were there for like the fly. And he goes, I pitched him the book. He goes, huh? Well, hold on. And he picked up the phone and called Cronenberg right then and there and got him on the phone and mentioned the book. And Cronenberg said, Oh yeah, it's right here in my, it's right here on my shelf in front of me. I, I, I love the book, but I don't think it's something I want to do. And I was like, part of me is like, Oh, I was right. And then part of me was like, damn it. It was so good. He'd be such a good match. But that is, that's the miracle of access that Scott Rudin brought to anything. He could call anybody at any time. But by the way, that your golden gut was, he saw your true value to him was that you have one foot in art house, one foot in popcorn. And I, I don't know that he does have enough of a popcorn, you know, sensibility. So you definitely were there. It was, it was just a, it was a moment where, you know, your childhood heroes suddenly are on the phone. You're like, Oh, 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 what do I say? What do I do? Oh. So. <laughs> uh, hello, sir. Every experience is a lesson and Craig took it to heart, well, but the, here look, we are. So talking. 1983, David Cronenberg. Video Video of a famous director. Cause we even know scanners better. Right, that was that predated. At least for the one scene, people know scanners better. Yeah. Sure, they like that's a that's a that's a gift that everybody like attaches. Yeah. But the thing about scanners, it also had I think four direct-to-video sequels. I think the second was theatrical. Then there's three more. No, so kidding. there's like tons of scanners out there, right? That lived through the '80s in terms of like their constant release. So it was it, they kept it in the foreground of the horror sort of a, a community. But the thing about Videodrome. Mm-hmm is that it was so far ahead of its time and it was so avant-garde in both what it was dis- what it was like observing, discussing and positing and also the ending is so unrelentingly dark and bleak. I, it's amazing that Universal even released the movie uh, no less even like, like uh, agreed to even go near it. Why did you watch it, Max? Business reasons. Sure. What about the other reasons? Ren is a victim. I woke up with a headache. He has been exposed to Videodrome. I've been hallucinating for a while, ever since... What? Since I first saw Videodrome. His brain is already receiving video images. I think that massive doses of Videodrome signal will ultimately produce and control hallucination. To the point that it will change human reality. It's funny that you mentioned that. This feels like a Trimark movie or something. No, 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 no. This feels, this is a a video outfit. It's it's a grungy movie, but it's so smart and it's so elliptical that. It, it doesn't even it doesn't, it doesn't even qualify as a forty second steep grindhouse movie because it's smarter than that. It's so weird. But I'm sorry, Ryan, mm-hmm. you were going to say. It's just funny how you say the movie was. Uh, thank you. Uh, say the movie was so before its time and had these like futuristic visions of it was making statements about you know how what's we consume coming. of what's coming and yet. There's no way in the world that movie gets made today. Nope. There's just no, uh, no way, no way on so many levels. I don't think it could have been made except in early 80s, quite frankly. There's yeah, just no way. Exactly. Well, just for a brief little recap, Videodrome is about an executive at a cable network called Channel 83 that runs softcore porn and hardcore violence to try and sort of keep up with its bigger competitors by offering the most prurient things. And through a, what seems to be a satellite radio feed, this executive named Max Wren discovers a feed that is just 
sex and violence. It seems to be almost no not no plot, no narrative, just violence. And it's so compelling and so contri- intriguing because it's so out there that he tries to find out where it came from. But what he ultimately discovers is that Videodrome, which is the name of the program, is actually a feed. It's a signal that goes into your brain and develops a tumor that creates hallucinations and allows you to see the world differently through what the identity on television is and vice versa. So there's a point in the movie where you're not sure what's real and what's not, but at the end of the day, it's about how we are programmed by media to execute things on the part of other people. And that's why I think that the movie is not only ahead of its time, but it shows the pernicious influence that corporations have on how we consume media. It also shows the whole bread and circus dynamic of sex and violence as something to attract us, to thereby program us in the same way that Facebook now is allowing their algorithms to push things on us. So I chose Videodrome because everything that Cronenberg was discussing in a very analog way back in where there were cable and videotapes in 1983 is completely and perfectly can overlay into current environment with Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and how even how people are perceived as a television personality. Well, everybody wants to have a personality on screen, just that's their avatar and their handle on Twitter. So that's the general bones of what's it about. But it even even presaged virtual reality. There's a moment where they put what looks like a virtual reality helmet on his head to record his hallucinations. And yet he can see. So it's, It's amazing how many elements were present in Videodrome that not only came true on a technological level, but just, again, are applicable to now as to why we are having such a cultural battle over media and over the internet and over identity and over, quite frankly, violence. And and I was going to say the connection between that and gun violence. Mm -hmm. And I would also say the rather graphic way of controlling Ren when he, you know, starts to slide, you know, into hallucinations. Out, yeah, slide into the hallucinations of inserting the videotape into this wound that's in his, his lower gut. You've been very useful to us, Max. We'd like to keep using you until you're all gone. Open up to me. Instantly made the connection of that and the cell phone. Like mm-hmm. it, they didn't have cell phones back then. The film was shot in eight, I think it was shot in 82. It was released in 83, yep. uh, early 82. And 
there were no cell phones then. And nope. it just well, seemed like... Well, maybe those big bricks sort of... I don't... Gecko I, phones. They I, had the big old bricks. They were car. like, you had, they had to carry yeah. the battery pack. Yeah, like, like yeah. it was like a... But, but like, but he's holding the breathing videotape. Yeah, the, no, The no, beta. No, I mean, and like, I just was like, oh my God. No, it wasn't a beta. It was a VHS. No, no, no. He's right. I just watched it last night. It was a beta. What's interesting and fascinating is that vaginal slit in James Wood's gut, as you call it, at the end, when the head of the evil corporation, and of course there's always an evil corporation, want him to go and commit murders on behalf of the ideology that is fueling the idiodrome, he takes a beta tape and shoves it into that open yeah. slit to that was program the programming. Him. Yes. Yeah. And have him go. And then later, when he's inside the building to do his harm, he reaches into this hole and pulls the gun that he left in there about 30 minutes earlier out, which then graphically injects itself with little tentacles into his hand. So it's fused to him physiologically. The the way that Cronenberg examines the relationship between technology and the human body, between um, perception and how it can relate to the manifestation in flesh, is that there's a medical look at how we absorb information that is so fascinating to me and has been prevalent in all of the movies he's done, going back to Rabid, The Brood, even Scanners with the sort of so psychokinesis element to it. And the uh, It's just, it's one of the things that he is obsessed with and fascinated by, and it kind of shows up in almost every movie he's done. Even the other movie that he released in 1983, which is as mainstream as it gets, but The Dead Zone was also 1983. That's right. And that's a great fucking movie. And it's so good. So it just proves he can, he can do what you ask. He can be a journeyman and deliver above and beyond. I I do think dead zone is a, is an unsung classic in itself, but it, it goes back to what you said when you're a producer and you're trying to hire a director question that you were asking was, you know, why are you doing this? Like what was mm-hmm. the thing that, and that's, that's not even a conscious answer if you do it right. Right. It's what you said, obsession, right? Mm-hmm. Scorsese, no matter what the story is, no matter what the main character wants, you can see that it's a Scorsese movie because the obsessions are in line De Palma. Great example. Right. Yep. Do you feel that the best directors have some of these obsessions and they they're using these vehicles, whether genre or not, to get at those questions that they have internally about these obsessions. Well, I think one could argue that Fractured Families has been fueling fueled the entire first half of Spielberg's career, trying to reconcile parents who are not getting along trying to until daddy gets on a flying saucer and leaves yeah which which is which is something that now as a family man he has disavowed and said i could never make that decision for any movie now knowing that's why we picked it yeah Uh, (laughs) and like we argued it's the end of the 70s and the beginning of the 80s Mm -hmm. in that one film yep and here you have at the end of videodrome you've got uh you know, I'm going to give it away because look, you wouldn't be listening if you no, hadn't this seen is, it. Yeah, this is a spoiler. Literally, full. at the end of Videodrome, you have our lead character with a gun in his hand, saying "Long live the new flesh" and blowing his brains out. Cut the black. What movie released by any studio would ever get made with that ending these days? It would uh, never. I, I I refer to Dead Zone 1983. The missiles are away. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Darkest scene in in modern cinema. Right. Yep. And then 
the protagonist dies at the end, having mm-hmm. completed his no, mission. No, the protagonist sacrifices himself. Different aesthetic as opposed to someone well, who has literally dead. assassinated dark, everybody. Dark <laughs> you know, Max Ren assassinates everybody he's been tasked with assassinating and then kills himself to plug up that hole so that the right. system he's can keep the final going. victim. That's yep. right. It's as dark as it gets. For me, the darkest part was once he was identified as a video drum sensitive or someone he was receptive yeah works yeah works best on the 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 combination of a creep a voyeur and a loner he then was repurposed as the the other cult leader's weapon yep right which is a flip that I I just love because it has such a nihilistic worldview. Oh, you're talking about Oblivion's daughter. Yes, yeah, Bianca she, actually says Bianca, yeah. Bianca Oblivion. The, the priestess of the new flesh, who was supposed to be his target, shows him another video in exactly using exactly the same technology to say, I'm deprogramming you. And for a second, we're like, oh, thank goodness. He's, mm-hmm. She's going to save him. And then she's like, but by the way, don't you think you should kill all those guys that tried to program you? Mm-hmm. Which is very Sirhan, Sirhan, and you know, takes us down a 70s route of like conspiracy theories and things like that. But it dovetails into the critical line in the movie is that Videodrome is a philosophy. They remove the technical element of it's just a show. It's a point of view. And once that is introduced into the intellectual ecosystem of the movie, that's when all bets are off. Because you have to wonder, well, it's not what's happening. It's what are they trying to sell by showing you what's happening. And thereby, the intersection between violence and media. Because remember, in the 80s, it was the satanic panic with like, you know, heavy death metal music. There was um, back masking. Yep, back masking. All, how about this? All the video. Yeah. Remember, this is the advent of the video era in 81, 82. And you have all of the video nasty elements going on in England where they ban 105 movies just from even being shown, most of which are still banned to this day because of how people felt watching these videos would literally poison the minds of young people. It's the same argument we have every cycle about video games. And anytime there's a shooting, oh, he was watching videos. Well, how come every other country has 10 times more video game playing and they don't have everybody shooting each other up? There's a whole different issue. It's not the point. But the fact that- Clockwork Orange- yeah, well, exactly. they, they want to get. They want to give us something to focus on. They quote unquote want to give us something to focus on that's not actually the the heart of the problem. Which also makes me wonder. You know, they made the Facebook movie, and they there have been other techno you know technologically based films, even kind of horror films, or that are in the horror genre. It no one's made that kind of like similar aesthetic to to Videodrome of like. Does Facebook control you? Because I think that's really before before we even knew what well, Facebook wait, there was. was or Tom, the do you was. remember the Tom Hanks movie? He was playing sort of a shadow. The Circle, yeah, the, the circle, circle, yeah, which I did not see, but I didn't see it either. anyway. So there's been attempts, but certainly not where your cell phone, you know, implants itself in your hand. But that's but that, that's but that's the language of Cronenberg. Yeah. I mean, yes, that's, that's the language of the director. It's the body horror component. Yeah, that's yeah. right. It's the obsession with the creepy and the and the oopy goopy. And by the way, practical effects, 1983. Rick uh, Baker. The, you know, I really Rick Baker. Rick Baker the, the thing. Just to get back to you, you can see Rick his Baker, work everywhere. American Werewolf in London. The thing with John Carpenter. This was his era. Was mm-hmm. late 70s, early 80s, and this was the 
probably the last gasp before digital started coming in and ruining everything late 80s, 90s. I I do want to say this as far as the effects go. There is one moment that I think is really impressive and that is, and I think it has to do with the story, is that Oblivion talks about how he had this tumor in his brain and the video drum signal has has generated this tumor and he said it's not really a tumor, it's a new part of his brain and it's Mm -hmm. a new human organ and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I find it very... It hit me when Ren kills the leader of the sunglasses. Very convex. Convex, <laughs> right? Con- the convex, convex. So many eye imagery. Okay, so I have many, to say, like optic. I have jokes to say this. I have to say this. There were two moments. I wear glasses. There are two moments that really ring true to me. And I wondered how. I, I wish I knew. I wish I could have been a fly on the wall. How this line got written. But when Ren comes in to kind of confront his video. Handlers. pirate yeah. jockey there's a Jamaican fella who's in the, the eyeglass hut mm-hmm. and he goes <laughs> there's this one line and I'm sure it's just a throwaway line but I really want to know because I've heard this line so many times because I have a hard prescription and it's going to be very difficult to cut the glass mm-hmm. there's this line where he, it's a totally throwaway Woods walks by him and you hear off camera the the Jamaican guy go, oh, the, your lenses are going to be really hard to cut. I'm surprised you can see these are going to be expensive. And I wonder, that is a line I hear today. And I, it made me By think, way, is that go, line go, bullshit? No, is go, that look, a bullshit go look line? at a picture of Cronenberg. He wears Coke bottle glasses. Yeah, I, That's for him. That I, was his throwaway. Yeah. But I would also argue, to your point earlier, Alex, that there's so much of this that deals with vision, perception, and yep. understanding that there's not a single line in there that is a throwaway. I think there's like, no. look at the opening channel 83 TV. You take to bed with you. Right. Like yes. literally that's the that tagline for this fat a, guy. Yeah. yeah with a wife beater, like with a TV in his, there's a, there's it, a, the, the mise en scene in this movie is very chosen and specific. And also satirical. I mean, there, I can't tell you how many lines of dialogue are. How does it look? What do you see? Mm-hmm. Like things that we just use as like throwaways. Everything is about watching, observing, you know, and, and by the way, James Woods is a perfect guy for the job. I'm right? surprised he sat there for all the makeup. Yeah. Well, honestly, look, but let me, let me just say one more yeah. thing to get back to the, to, to the visual effect or the, the special. Yeah, yeah. 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 Sorry. So that he's talking about the tumor and when he kills convex, he basically explodes on set in front of his oh, investors they had the, and yes. he's full of tumors. Yes. And mm-hmm. I made me wonder if like, Oh, it's, he's actually without saying it, he's showing he was that one it, of the first victims he, who now works for the organization. And now he's just a giant tumor inside. It's almost like an alien, like a symbiote is inside mm-hmm. of him. I mm-hmm. thought that was really cool. From what I understand, they had to do four different casts of that actor's face to get it right. Oh, I can't imagine the time <laughs> it took. Mm-hmm. And by the way, that thing, look, Say what you will about those. Cronenberg filmed that in full stage lighting. Yep. Oh, he yeah. knew the face. Front and center. Yeah, yeah, front and center. He knew, like, I mean, look, God bless him. It's not, you know, it's not the visual effects that we have, the CG effects today of facial tracking and doing all the mapping and everything. But you have to give him credit. That scene where it tears itself apart and, st- like, I can't imagine the eight guys that are offset hitting, oh, yeah. like... Who are underneath that elevated stage, all all piled on top of each other, each one working a different lever. With syringes, right. like Some pressure syringes an and levers. And, like, a CO2. Unbelievable. Yeah. But you Fantastic. know what? The, the, way, the way that... And this is just... It's classic, you know, bait-and-switch magic tricks. The way that 
Rick Baker and any of these guys intelligently makes it work is they tie in a real human element, either foreground. If you notice, his hands are real human hands that are right, reaching right, up underneath right, right, and right. attached to the right. arm going over. Yeah. So there's gesticulation that sells articulation that feels human and real and not levered. Um, I thought the uh, the chest vagina was the, the, it was it was James Woods' real nipples, but then they sort of like blended. It was a really good blend. It of, was, of and because his hands and arms and, are right there, and they, yeah, and he's and he's selling it. And it's all yeah. about the actor selling yeah. it. He's right? against yeah. the door in one scene, and you could tell. I, I I mean, just because I know a little bit about the movie magic business, is that he is actually uh, on he the, won an Emmy for visual effects. That's what we mean by a little Ren, bit. Mm-hmm. He uh, his upper torso is through outside the, the door. The, yeah. yeah, it's on the outside of the door, and his lower torso is. Well, no, that's like the guy on the operating table in the thing. He's his head is on the pillow, and right. then they slant him into the floor mm-hmm. so that the guy so good. hits, so hits good. him with it's, the paddle. It's Kevin Bacon getting the arrow through his neck in Friday the Thirteenth. He's oh, you know right. it's all yeah. neck down is the prosthetic, and wow. neck up is his real face. And, and by the way, that I mean, that's I mean, I, there's still some of it now, but. Always the most fun day on the set is like and the, the, and fact, the most expensive, most time-consuming, most looky-loos, most uh, executive, most phone-in producers that want a picture with the thing. It's it's always and 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 everybody's on their best behavior, and the crew is extra tight because it's the last thing in an era of digital filmmaking that you got to get right. When you were doing 400 foot mags and you had to sit there and load that stuff and get those, you know, cameras rolling and pictures up and speed, that literally meant that emulsion was getting exposed by visible light and you better not fuck it up. And we only have enough money for one take. Now with digital, you just hose everything, but you can't do that with a car crash, with a squib effect or whatever so it's still that old movie magic moment of a bunch of you know just vagabond theatrical players hoping that this trick works and then pulling it over on the audience but that also goes down to a director understanding that what you show and how you show it can sell the gag which is why there's a real human hand here we we mm-hmm. actually for the beat an fd3 where a girl gets a nail gun to the back of the head and her hand gets nailed to her own face. It's for the kids, you know, good times. But we digitally took her real eye looking there's and good, closing. There's a good bait and switch in that scene, and by the way. Put it on the and put it on the prosthetic mask oh. that we use so that even though you're looking at a mask, suddenly you're seeing a real human eye and there was a really good blend. And you're like, wait, is that really your face? Because you organically, the human, like your, your lizard brain sees the real and then bleeds outwards. So you start investing the fake with the real because you want to find the real first. You don't look the other way. It's, it's weird, but you always, if you have one thing that is a tangible human element, it will infuse the rest of it with that humanity because you're trying to reconcile the two and your lizard well, brain wants it to be real. Know, Otherwise it does not compute. How, you know, you show, they did all those experiments with chimpanzees, uh, you know, all this different video footage they showed them. And by far they loved watching other chimpanzees because mm-hmm. that's what they recognize. Our brains are, especially the eye example. That's the first thing a baby recognizes, right? They want to make eye contact mm-hmm. so you don't leave them out in the bush. Like, hey, we're friends, right? Just keep feeding me. I'll grow up and help you with the feel. But that's exactly why we use the digital composite for the eye because yep. that's the yep. one thing that humans gravitate towards instantly. And but that's this goes, the uncanny valley, by That the way. is it. That's why when it doesn't work, you're like, ah, I don't buy anything. Ah, that thing is a mannequin. Get it away. 
But but the thing about Videodrome for me is a my father he had the, my first R-rated movie was <laughs> Alien the first Alien in the theater nice, in 1979 nice. and my father because you know he was supportive it wasn't necessarily his cup of tea but I went to midnight screenings of Dawn of the Dead Texas Chainsaw Massacre mm-hmm. I was like 12 right you know I love that shit Ter- scared the crap out of him but I I was all eat it up but when we got to Videodrome which if people who are listening haven't seen it there is graphic S&M violence, torture, sexual mayhem throughout, including episodes and little vignettes of porno that he's looking to buy to put on his... My father was like, we got to get the hell out of here if this keeps up. That was the thing that pushed him over the edge. And yet... It's the porn, it's the not thing, the violence. Yeah. It was the porn, yeah. not the violence. And it was always struck me as odd that he didn't care about the violence, but the sex was a problem, especially mm-hmm. when the sex and the violence were overlapping. And that is exactly yes. what triggers in the brain, the desire to see more, the desire to push boundaries, like what will titillate you, that threshold continues to grow. And and from the point of Videodrome, it grows into, as Ryan, you said earlier, an actual organ. It can- A physical manifestation. A physical manifestation of that desire for more. Give Give us a little backstory now. I believe you're absolutely right. And I don't know if it feels like it's a puritanical American issue, the- you know, sex, bad, violence, good. But take us through, you said, you know, for American Pie, you had some challenges getting from an NC-17 to an R. Mm-hmm. And that was a comedy, right? Mm-hmm. That was just, you were doing sex comedy. So they were uncomfortable with some of the thrusting, et cetera. What about Final Destination? Never How did that go? really had a single problem, ever. Tells you everything you need to know about the American Never films. had an issue. Bam. It tells you what you need to know about society. About the general, psyche actually. of an American, right? Yeah. Sex, bad, violence, good. In a weird way, Videodrome is a sort of biological, psychological version of the Manchurian candidate. Because you have I was Max gonna call it. I was going to call it parallax view with body dysmorphia, but I okay. like yours better. Because I think, because remember, he is being programmed to execute this vision. And it's only when he is triggered by the programming to go yes. and pull yes, off. The so I think Manchurian, and look, I think, uh, I think Andy Warhol described Videodrome as the, the clockwork orange of the eighties. And I think that's not dissimilar either. You know, it's about programming you with sex and violence to either change or become a different person. In Cronenberg's case, as you were saying earlier, it's, it's writ large in flesh. And that's yes. the difference. And today you take the algorithm that is designed to inflame and enrage you so that you become less logical and mm-hmm. more illogical and more able to Re- you uh, react be, be you can't you, you can be yes. manipulated that's yes. exactly why videodrome is as current today and i and i challenge and hope that everyone listening goes to watch it because here's the other thing too it is i think impeccably directed it is concise it is clear it is clean it is stylish enough with movement. I mean, Mark Irwin, who actually shot American Pie 2, and I never asked him about it because he was kind of cranky, but (laughs) it's shot with some energy, but it's never a wasted frame. Everything in frame is there with purpose. And I I just, I can't say how well made it is. And that is diametrically opposed to how sleazy it is. It's so interesting to have something that is as prurient as this movie comes off, but it's so well executed. It's high gloss, world class, low class. It's really fascinating. It was an expensive movie for the time too. Was it? It was. It was uh, six million. 
six million. Wow, six million dollars well, back then you know, is probably twelve now. But but, oh, at put, least. but by the way, he put his time in the mines in. This is his fourth film, and Scanners made money. I mean, Brood made money. The same weekend that it opened, February fourth of nineteen eighty three, the Entity opened, and the Entity wound up making thirteen point two million dollars in total worldwide. Videodrome did two point one. Yeah, it didn't do very well. I don't. I don't know Entity. What, what? Oh, you don't. Oh. Know, you don't remember the box cover at the. You, at if you the, see it, you'll be like, "Oh my god, that one!" Yeah, it, you, this you is not news. Well, yeah, yeah. well, by the way, that's one of the things we were talking about before we got you on the on the line was the box art of Videodrome. Like, I have a clear. In fact, I was afraid of it because of the box. Mm-hmm. Like, I was like, ooh, maybe that one's too much. Because a lot of the horror movies of that era, like you said, there was a wink and a nod. It was more just a ride. They didn't really care about the characters. And it was literally just like, look how, this, look at this kill. This is a, it's a rake or it's, you know, and you could have a sort of jovial distance from it because you knew it was just spectacle. What yep. scared me about the Videodrome box is like, uh, makes me feel funny inside because you're at a video That's store. That's called an erection, Alex. Oh, uh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> that explains so much. I mean, but but Deborah Harry, speaking of erections, I don't know if that's appropriate to say, but I think it was one of her first acting roles. Mm-hmm. And now, here it is, the Rita King Show. And this afternoon, Rita's guests are Max Wren, controversial president of Channel 83, radio personality Nikki Brand, and media prophet Professor Brian Oblivion. Take it away, Rena. Max Wren, your television station offers its viewers everything from softcore pornography to hardcore violence. Why? Well, it's a matter of economics, Rena. We're uh, small. In order to survive, we have to give people something they can't get anywhere else. And, uh, and we do that. But don't you feel such shows contribute to a social climate of violence and sexual malaise? And do you care? Certainly I care. I care enough, in fact, to give my viewers uh, a, a harmless outlet for their, their fantasies and their frustrations. And as far as I'm concerned, that's a socially positive act. What about it, Nikki? Is it socially positive? Well, I think we live in overstimulated times. We crave stimulation for its own sake. We gorge ourselves on it. We always want more, whether it's tactile, emotional, or sexual. And I think that's bad. Then why did you wear that dress? Sorry? That dress. It's very stimulating. And it's red. You know what Freud would have said about that dress. And he would have been right. I admit it. I live in a highly excited state of overstimulation. You know, she was at the peak or near peak of her popularity as a pop star, uh, lead singer of Blondie. And a good choice because, you know, the thing about James Woods is he's got that everyman face, you know? Mm -hmm. He's just got that. A guy who could not be a star today. Yeah. Just a, like uh, Gene Hackman and, and, and the whole Walter cast Matthau leading oh, pictures. Oh. What? Yeah. The whole cast of the French on. Connection. Well, yes. you know, the whole Which is, ter- it's sad to say, it's, it's terrible. True. It's so but true. Roy Schneider, come on, he's got that rugged. He looks like a Marlboro. I, I just don't think he plays today. It's sad. These people who are- Roy Schneider looks like one of the Easter Island statues. I mean, I, there's no possible way that that guy should be a movie star, but he is and he's great. But see, what's interesting is Videodrome came out uh, in that month. The house in Sorority Row opened the week earlier. 
Entity and Video Dream the same week, and Madman and One Dark Knight each subsequent week. So that they were dumping to your the earlier comment about you know is January February the dumping grounds? They were dumping it. They were yeah. dumping it in the graveyard yeah. of horror movies. They, they and they thought it was and, grab. and they thought it was of that quality level, but it stays because, like you said, the 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 bona fides of it are actually above above average you know the, exactly. the filmmaking is is above average it's it's it, it made me think of uh you remember dreamscape sure absolutely that was 84 i think yeah i mean it was still it, one of my favorites it's I, great. I, really, I think 83 is an interesting time because the artistic community the john carpenters and and cronenbergs and there was a lot of concern about reaganism and appearance versus reality Right. And that sort of sunny top hiding an unseemly reality. Right. Yes. But there was also the desire to control the information and control yeah. the people who would react to the message in a positive or negative way, which is why people talk about video drum being a satire. And I, I mean, to me, satire always lends it to being comedic, but I understand that satire taken on this level is more serious. It's just sort of, it's not poking fun. It's shining a light on the hypocrisy of both sides. You're absolutely right. I think the line of satire is almost meant to be absorbed on a second viewing. And that's yes. my kind of movie is it, the average you know, wh- horror fan is going to get what they need from it. But a filmmaking fan is going to go back and be like, wow, look at this other layer that's going on here. Mm-hmm, you know? mm-hmm. Commentary is the satire. It also was a time that we sadly we don't have anymore which is there were a lot of movies that span all different kinds of genres like i I, for some reason it just popped into my head the movie fx which i think sure at the same time 85 i think yeah just the 80s was this and the the 70s too in some degree we just don't see those kind of movies anymore and it really is just a little disheartening and we don't see brian dennehy's face anymore i mean again another Another, another yeah, radio, another guy, right? yeah. I mean, there's just a ton of guys who so much who had a major acting careers yeah. that if they started today, there's no way they're making movies. There's no way they're. If you want to talk about the issue of tone and the equal levels of graphic violence, but that April of '83, The Evil Dead was released and made twenty nine million dollars. So it was not about the violence. It was about what it was saying about violence. Evil Dead is delivering the violence in a way that you're just like, oh, it's gross, but it's still feeding into that brain, that part of the brain that gets you titillated and excited because you can't believe you're watching it. Whereas Videodrome was asking you to question the transgression, whether or not it's okay to be titillated by this. The complicity in the violence, Max Ren as a character in Videodrome, as he starts to become more and more involved and engaged, you're seeing it through his eyes. You are complicit in his desires. And it I think it made people uncomfortable. That's why it was not a hit, because it just forced people to reconcile their own titillation with the realities of their own existence. And, and I feel that that's why it was on the B side of his oeuvre. But it's also the thing that has stood the test of time because it is perennial in its in its affect and in its examinations. And but you have to remember, at that point, Scanners was such a big hit domestically uh, mm-hmm. that he was offered total recall off of Scanners. But he chose right. to do Videodrome, which I think was at the time called Network of Blood. 
<laughs> Obviously, I, I think Video Drum is a more interesting <laughs> title. But look, if he had he not done the Dead Zone as a one-two punch for '83, I don't think we'd be having this conversation, honestly, because the Dead Zone financially brought him back from the sort of no pun intended oblivion that mm-hmm. Videodrome put him into. Um, and well, then of course was, the fly he, cemented he, it. He yeah. certainly was in director jail after that. I'm well, sure. after scanners, apparently he was also, they were discussions for return of the Jedi. Wow. It's a kind of made, it's well, amazing. Lynch was, he wanted David Lynch. I mean, talk about obsessional filmmakers, you know, that didn't make the jump. It seems like now it's rare to find somebody. I mean, I read an article that the Coens were offered, uh, one of the big franchises at their time. I think it might've been star Wars three or, you know, what mm-hmm. revenge of the Jedi at the time. And they said, no. So it's interesting. The choices that people make, I feel like now directors are literally just making one film as sort of like their tryout for the next star Wars franchise film. Well, the problem is technology has democratized filmmaking to the degree that any asshole can make a movie. It doesn't mean you should, or you have the skills to do it or the story that's worth telling, but you can do it with your iPhone and your computer. You can do a fairly competently technically made movie, but why? I mean, I think the numbers for Sundance, they are like 5,000 movies are submitted every year. 300 get picked for programming, 20 sell. You've got a better shot at being a professional football player than a produced screenwriter. Yeah, it's the 1% it's, of 1%. Yeah, it's, it's, it's bonkers. And unfortunately, the tyranny of opportunity with technology means that we're just overwhelmed with movies. So if I'm Netflix and there's a horror movie that's not bad, and in 1983 would have gotten a you know 500 screen release, you're going to get $25,000 for North American rights. So There's no upside. So, Craig, yeah, what is the state of modern filmmaking today in this tsunami of content? How do you, as a proven storyteller, get through to us? It's all streaming. I gave up on the necessity for a theatrical five years ago. There was no point. My my wow. goal isn't to be in movie theaters. My goal is to tell stories. And wow. whatever platform will allow for that story to be told in, its, in the best way possible is the platform for me. Look, there's like all the, except for one of the Final Destination movies, all of them have lost money, according to studio accounting, and sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars. So I'm not interested in saying, I want the theatrical because I'll be rich. No, you won't. They'll hide that shit from you every day. But at least in streaming, you'll get a 30% buyout because they don't want to have to sort of consider giving you any kind of a back end or participation. So So in actuality, what looked like a bad deal is is a better deal. Yeah, I just want to. I just want to go back. How many Final Destinations were you part of? And did the studio? But what's the number? We are trying to get. No, we're trying to get six off the ground now. Six. So you know, you. It's amazing that they all lost so much money, considering they just kept going back to the well. We're we're going to get it. We're going to get. We're going to make it right this time. We were one week out of shooting Final Destination two, and I got my first and only quote unquote profit participation statement from the studio, which said that the movie lost ninety million dollars. So I called our executive. I'm like, "Why are we doing this? Like, apparently we're losing money hand over fist with these this franchise." To which he very sagely said, "Shut up and take your paycheck." And I was like. Understood, sir. Moving on. Here we go. You know, as I, my attorneys have said, if you are within $15 million of seeing break even in a movie, it's worth spending 50 grand on the audit because they'll probably shake some money loose. Anything right. above that, you're just going to lose 50 grand. Right. I've heard that too, that that's the ratio when you start uh, rattling sabers. But uh, okay, inside baseball, here we are back to Videodrome. So, what do we do about? Are we just watchers? 
Is that have we been trained to be watched? I'm always curious about the technology versus humankind or the angels of our better nature is, are we watchers that, you know, videotape and television and now Facebook and social networks, are they just hijacking what is inborn in us? I think there's definitely a, as you said earlier, there's a way that technology can manipulate, but how does it manipulate you? Via emotion. Emotions are the things that drive us. So Mm -hmm. all of these algorithms, uh, as Ryan said earlier, they're just driving us to polar opposites by virtue of playing on our emotions. And what does the best storytelling do? It makes us feel. So Mm -hmm. I would argue that movies and any kind of content that is telling an emotional story will always work and will always make you feel something and people will always gravitate towards them. There's the immediacy of 3D, remember CinemaScope and widescreen and all these sort of gags and gimmicks to get people to go to movies once the, the industry thinks things are flagging. But at the end of the day, if it's a good movie, people will go. If it makes them feel something, they will show up in droves. So This is why for me, it's so important to focus on the script before anything else. Because if the script works, if it's hitting on the beats that make you care, make you feel one way or the other, and even like loathing a character can be just as potent as loving a character, but it wants you to engage in that journey they're on. That's your magic. That's your ticket. That's your magic ticket into the ecosystem of Hollywood is to be involved with a script that makes people feel. And I don't care how they feel, but feel something. Unfortunately, Facebook and Twitter and all these other algorithm-driven things have pushed it to the point where now we're on the precipice of actual violence by taking what should just exist in the Twitter sphere and turning it into reality by having people show up for protests over something that doesn't even exist. But that's playing on what? People's emotions. I think that our job as storytellers is to take those emotions and hopefully channel or funnel them towards something positive or worthwhile. Because Lord knows the real world is uh, dark and dangerous enough. I think we should look at maybe finding some way to find common ground as opposed to finding ways to divide each other. Hey, everyone. Before we go any further, I just wanted to say that some of our favorite movies here are comedies. There's another show from Next Chapter Podcast that we think you might like called Midnight Public Radio. Created by the Washington, D.C. comedy troupe, the Midnight Gardeners League, Midnight Public Radio is a podcast for everyone who has a love-hate relationship with NPR. Sick and tired of all those horrifyingly depressing reports on climate change and boring human interest pieces on the guy who invented the ceiling fan? Like This American Life on Acid, Midnight Public Radio takes the world of stuffy intellectual broadcasting and shoves it through a gonzo meat grinder of semi-improvised sketches covering different aspects of our world. Featuring absurd characters and segments about things like illegal caterpillar racing, death conventions, and a riot at an old folks' home, this is a show for everyone who's ever thought all things considered has a stick up its ass. War, sports, the culinary arts. MPR has it all. Listen to Midnight Public Radio wherever you get your podcasts or go to midnightgardenerscomedy.com to learn more. Now back to the show. I forget, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but David Fincher said really what he does is just elicit emotions, mm-hmm. right? He's just, uh, that's what film is to him. I agree with you about the, the, the platforming conversation. A lot of people you know, back in the day, we're like, film, not digital. And that argument's kind of gone away, unless you have the luxury to have the conversation. We had that 
fun kerfuffle on Project Greenlight, where mm-hmm. that, that was that became a, a story point. But I think the jury's out on that one. Now the next conversation is, which is exactly what you said. I'm a storyteller first, platform second. I'll project on the inside of your eyelids when they let me. Right. Yep. So how does that affect your maybe development process in terms of, you know, you got to look for series or are you okay just putting one off films? Well, on you know, streamer? sometimes a movie, like we have one feature script that we're trying to turn into a limited series because it, it's a hard movie to get made, but it's a more viable limited run series because the characters are terrific, but the idea is this doesn't feel like it's going to justify at least on a theatrical basis, that, you know, 35 to $45 million price tag. Okay, breaking in, the movie we made at Universal a couple of years back, we did that movie for about $6.1 million. And everybody agreed to take no money up front and we would participate in first dollar gross. Great, it worked out fine. But the movie made $52 million worldwide and lost money in its initial release. Why? Mm-hmm. Because they spent $35 million marketing it just domestically. And that's what people don't realize, that the, the budget of the movie is irrelevant. You can spend six, 16, or 60. If you want to open it wide, you're spending a minimum of $35 million. And it goes right. up from there. For American, the worldwide marketing budget on American Reunion was $90 million, and the movie cost 62 Wow. <laughs> and of that 62, 17 was physical production. Everything else is above the line. Wow. So going to a streamer, you're, you're obviating the need for that marketing cost because it's like, again, algorithm driven. It's going to show up on the portal. If you have proven to like movies like it, you'll have instant instant marketing. It'll show up there as a, as a runner at the bottom of your screen. And does that put you more into, like we said, a pigeonhole? Because it's like, if you like Final Destination, you'll like the new Craig the, Perry production. There, I, had a, I had a discussion this morning. It's with a guy who's had a bunch of things on Netflix. It's an idea that Netflix literally said, we'll get Craig involved because it makes sense for what his brand is. And we're going to yep. go in with that pitch um, soon. But we were talking about that the, this morning. There's maybe four places in town that would ever make this movie, given the current environment. And right. you know, how do you spend your life at this age? I'm not going to ask anybody to write a script. In the old days, you'd pitch it to 20 places in a week. Now they, they don't exist. You have six. Because what Disney does is diametrically opposed to what Warner Brothers does, which is diametrically opposed to what Universal does. They have all retreated to a silo of what their brand identity Which is, is. how we started all this. Warner Brothers made gangster movies. MGM made musicals. Warner Brothers made gangster movies and big name dramas where the poster looked like grape clusters of heads of actors all yeah. stacked up. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 right, Columbia made the lower brow stuff, et cetera, et cetera. So- in a way, we're back to the six studio system, right? We, I mean, yeah, we are because in the '80s, there's always been little pockets here and there, but in like you know, Lorimar, the smaller like you know, independent yeah. ones, but they always needed the studios for distribution. For distribution. But yeah. All the smaller places that were around in the in the late '80s and the '90s themselves, there was there's 30 more people who were financing. New Regency was doing a lot more stuff, you know. I mean, there was just there were just more checkbooks to go to to get traction to get something set up at. It doesn't necessarily mean distribution because there's only so many places for that. But there were a lot more places that were willing to invest in developing materials so that they would own the movie and it would be a rent-a-studio scenario. That doesn't exist anymore. Well, uh, on the other other hand, everybody has worldwide distribution in their pockets, right? True, but who controls that? I mean, 
yes, there are standards and practices on YouTube, let's say, but for the most part, you can put anything you want up. It's just now it's, it's the opposite. Ah, ah, but you're making one critical error. If you do not have thirty-five to forty million dollars in marketing, how can you took the words out of break through the din yes. of video games, Twitter, Instagram, yeah. Facebook, everything on chat? Every every the sum total of human knowledge is in your pocket, not just the sum total of human entertainment. How do you make people even know it's there? I speak to so many of these young kids, and like, look, we're sort of to a degree like there are movies that when you talk to people and you're like how could you not have seen that i'm like well how could you expect them to they can literally go on and has the thousand movies to choose from it's overwhelming like when i did have interns we would have a regimen here's the hundred movies you need to watch just so you can be conversant here's the 600 if you get a chance do it but just go on wikipedia and read the synopsis so that when you're talking to writers and talking (laughs) to executives you can at least understand where it had traction and value I can't ask them to watch 700 movies. That's ridiculous. They have like they're in school, but there are a hundred that are sort of like the benchmark movies that are the paradigms for structure and tone that are reference points for everybody. And if you don't know them, you're not really wanting to be in the business, but I think that's the reason we're here talking, Craig. Exactly. That's the purpose of greenlit as a, as a, that's the perfect of greenlit is not only to inspire you to maybe get into the business, but understand how, understand what it's going to take and give you the passion and inspiration to arm yourself when you finally make that step into the journey. Because it takes all of those things. And, yep. and the lost classics that inspire you as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think it's like you said, it's real easy to just consume TikToks all day. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just sensate, it's quick twitch, whatever, but it's, it's rare to, I mean, look, you, we're all filmmakers. I'm, I'll bet that at every Thanksgiving dinner you ever went to, you meet somebody or you see an old relative and they say, oh, you're a filmmaker. You know, what What do I watch? What should I watch? Mm-hmm. You know? you well, this goes, to, this goes to talking to young folks who are PAs on set that I've worked with, that you've worked with, that we've all worked with, where you say, hey, did you see Close Encounters of the Third Kind? Or you say, let's do this shot, you know, the scene that's, of Close Encounters of the Third was. Kind. And they're like, yeah. what's Close Encounters we, of the Third Kind? I'm like, <laughs> Steven Spielberg, what, what do you mean? Yeah, we stole, I mean, if uh, you said video, if I yelled Videodrome outside, the, I don't think there would be many people. Uh, actually, I'll bet at least one of one of our neighbors here would say, no, the way of the new flesh. <laughs> yeah. Long live the new flesh. No, you may be call, right. Call and response in Santa Monica. Right. No, but I, I've, I, I, I've had people, I say, have you seen Jaws? And they're like, no, I've heard of it. But I, I can't, again, you, it's, it is, I think it is, it is foolhardy to blame them for no. their lack of cinematic knowledge because no, no. there's only so many hours in the day when you have everything that needs to be, I, I have to, there are things that I know I want to see but I can't say, oh, I've never seen The Wire. Well, that's 70 hours of my life. I don't even have 70 minutes to devote right. to stuff at this point. I have to say you've kind of opened my eyes to this, which is I'd never really thought about it before and I don't know why, but I do look at it now as not just from this conversation, not how have you not seen this movie, but when you really think about it, there's everything that you could possibly ever want it's to look at and watch. Yeah. It's actually and, and, understandable. Because it was Destination. For us, oh, you had to go into Sunday paper and circle the movies on the TV that you want to get up at four in the morning to watch because otherwise you'd never see them because at that point there were no VCRs. I'll do you one better. People of a certain age, Jaws was one of the first videotapes. Jaws was one of the first five video discs 
ever created, right? Mm -hmm. It led the way to each of these platforms, DVD, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So now it's just another two inch thumbnail on this spew of The sea of thumbnails. Yeah. And what does it all mean? Who cares? And we're saying, we're here saying, this is why you should care. But even one deeper, because I feel like Look, I, I don't, I'm not the young whippersnapper, you should know your education guy. It's just like Brian said, if I say, hey, I want to rip off a shot from Rosemary's Baby and no one knows what I'm talking about, uh, that's an issue because it means we've, we have forgotten some of our legacy of why we're here. You know? Yes, yes and no. Um, I, have, I have become less dogmatic about it because like – for us, Star Wars was the be-all, end-all of everything. But you know what? Yeah. There's a generation where the Avengers movies – like you see people mm-hmm. watching the trailer for the Avenger Endgame bawling their eyes out on the fucking mm-hmm. trailer because it's it theirs. meant something to them because those movies were part of their growing up in the same mm-hmm. way that Star Wars was part of ours. I think it would be disingenuous of us to demand fealty to what mattered to us by throwing away what mattered to them, we just have to be able to sort of jump on their side of the fence and understand why it meant something to them and, and not demand that they acknowledge that we were better, older, younger, stronger, faster, but just that we had our own influences. I, I think that's a, I think that in a nutshell is a great place to stop for today. That's a fantastic place to stop. Yeah. I think we all just have to look at each other and realize we come from different times and we don't want to be too nostalgic about it. Mm-hmm. No, but in the pressed. same way we want to introduce them to things, we should ask them what means yeah, something to you yeah. That's right. and then have like a cultural exchange between generations that might actually help us not only get along, but help us understand what's working in today's marketplace. And as, as people being in the film business, you know, we are old farts. Let's get a beat on what the younger people are thinking about and what's meaning something to them. And you might just change the way you tell stories in a positive way too. What's the, what's the car movie your, your daughter likes, Alex? Oh, uh, Baby Driver. Yeah, Baby Driver seems to be yeah. the answer every time. Oh, well, well, well <laughs> but, every, every cut. Every you know, yeah. yeah. No cut, direct story. Jam, I, I, jam. I do like the movie. I love it too, I, yeah. Does always seem to be the answer. Always seems to be baby driver. For yeah, <laughs> let's have them watch Ozu for a while and pull their hair out five minutes into the twenty minute reel. Right? I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. Hey, maybe maybe that's our job is just keep that fire burning. Yep. Kind of yep. Craig, we're gonna have to have you come back at some point in time. This has Absolutely. been an amazing, fascinating conversation. Too we good. really appreciate the time again. Craig's hits. Craig Perry. Craig Perry, his hits, American Pie, the franchise, and Final Destination, and Cats and Dogs, all are available for purchase out on your streaming services and are available, and you should definitely watch all of them. Many, many... Many hours of enjoyment. Yeah, many hours. One one can hope. (laughs) I appreciate you guys giving me the opportunity, and we'll have to do it again soon. Absolutely. All right. Thank you, Craig. All right, guys. Thanks. Thanks for joining us on How I Got Greenlit. That was Craig Perry, one of our favorite guests on the show and a font of many quotable quotes about the business and one of my favorite raconteurs of all time. Hope you enjoyed the episode and we'll see you next week. As always, if you want to reach out to us, we're on Twitter and Instagram at How I Got Greenlit. And we're also at howigotgreenlit at gmail.com. Reach out. Let's talk. I'm Alex Collegian for my co-host Ryan Gibson. And this was How I Got Greenlit.
porn, Satan, drugs, therapy. It's not just the list of what I'm up to this weekend. I'm comedian Kiki Anderson, and those are just a handful of the taboo topics I've poked and prodded at so far on my podcast, Indecent, the show where we peel at the wallpaper of polite society. Each episode digs into the dark underbelly of our culture to dissect the things we aren't allowed to talk about around the dinner table, featuring conversations with comedians, activists, journalists, academics. They all help me figure out the who, what, and why behind what is and isn't acceptable behavior. Indecent with Kiki Anderson, where NSFW meets LMAO. Next Chapter Podcasts.